we're in Hosea chapter 4. So, have you guys been enjoying the book of Hosea so far? Okay. It's an interesting book. It certainly keeps you on your toes. So, over the last three weeks, we've been looking at the book of Hosea. And we're just going to do a quick summary review here. Hosea is a single guy who lives alone, and he's kind of a hermit, right? Okay, some of you are awake. No, he's not. Hosea got married. He married a woman named Gomer. And what do we know about Gomer? She was not a very good wife. She was unfaithful. She was a harlot. God commanded her in chapter. God commanded Hosea in chapter one to go out, find a harlot, and marry her. He went out. He found Gomer, and he married her. And they had how many kids together? Three kids. Ooh, bonus question. What were the names of the kids? Jezreel? Loami? Loruhamah. Loami means not... That's the extra bonus question. Not my people. And Loruhamah? No compassion, no mercy. So... Jezreel was named after the Valley of Jezreel, where Jehu killed the northern and the southern king, and God promises he's going to end Jehu's line, also in the Valley of Jezreel. Lo-Ami is a judgment on the people. It's a reversal of the promise in in the uh, Old Testament where God said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And so now he reverses and says, nope, you're not my people. And Lo-Ruhamah is a promise that they are not going to receive any mercy. They're not going to receive the compassion of God. So chapter 1, the three children are a metaphor for the judgment of God. And it's the judgment of God on which nation? The northern kingdom or the southern kingdom? The northern. Chapter 2, we have Hosea and Gomer is still being used. The metaphor is still being used. Hosea is picturing God. Gomer is picturing Israel. And it describes Israel's relationship with Yahweh. And it's not a very good one, is it? And then in chapter 3, we saw again last week, we had the same idea. Hosea is told to go back and to love your wife again. In all of these, we have a start starting point. The starting point is judgment. And in all three chapters so far, it's ended with what? Restoration. Every chapter so far has had judgment and an ending in restoration. I hope you have enjoyed that. That's about to end. From here, he does show some of God's grace and mercy, but from chapter 4 through 14, most of the remaining text is a deep dive into the sin and the apostasy of the nation of Israel and the judgment of God on that nation for their sin. It's also going to change in that the first three chapters were easy to outline. They were easy to tell where the divisions were. From chap- everyone, Every commentary you read, they agree. Chapters 1 through 3 is a section. You get into chapter 4 through 14, and there's no agreement with anyone, anywhere, for any reason on the outline. They don't agree on the outline at all. Um, the other difference here is chapters 1 through 3 are relatively easy to understand. If you just take the text for what it says, and you apply some basic rules to your hermeneutics, you can come to a meaning. And most of the commentaries agree on the big aspects of it. By the time you get into chapter 4, if you guys go home and read a couple commentaries on Hosea, you're going to recognize there's a lot of disagreement in a lot of areas. So this morning, we're going to start with chapter 4. We're going to start chapter 4, verse 1, and we're going to go through chapter 5, verse 7. It's a lot of text, I know. Okay? All right. Chapter 4, he's going to take Israel to court. In chapter 4, we have God being pictured as a courtroom attorney. He's going to act as a prosecutor. So I have on your handout, Israel goes to court. 
They're taken to court by Yahweh. Notice chapter 4, verse 1. Let me actually turn there in my Bible. Chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel, for the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land. Listen to the word of the Lord. Again, this is kind of mirroring chapter 1. The Lord has something to say to them. He has a case against them. The word here for case is a legal suit. A legal claim. It's what you would do when you take someone to court. I have a case against you. It's a charge. He's a prosecutor. And he's going to go into the courtroom and say, here's my case that I have against the nation of Israel. And notice in the first, uh, first verse, he gives a, an opening statement, and that's our first point, Yahweh's opening statement. It's verses 1 through 3. He's in a courtroom, he's the prosecutor, his opening statement is, begins this way. Because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. Faithfulness, literally, there is no truth. Um, okay, there we go. It's the word for truth. God is always truthful. God is the God of truth. He keeps his word. What he says, he does. What he claims is true. This does not mark Israel. It's, it's translated as faithfulness. They're not faithful to what they say. They're not faithful to what God has said. There's no faithfulness. There's no kindness. The English here just doesn't do it justice. This is the Hebrew word kesed. Anybody heard that word? Kesed? Nobody's heard that word. It's the same word out of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk. Right? It describes the loving kindness, the faithful love of Yahweh. It's his everlasting, his unfailing, his dependable love. Psalm 63:3, he says, Because your loving kindness is better than life. This is one of his attributes. He's truthful and he has loving kindness. And God looks at Israel and says, You're my people. But you're not marked by truth, and you're not marked by love. You don't have any of my attributes. And the question is, how can you be his people and not resemble him at all? And that's exactly where he goes. Notice at the end of verse 1, he says, There is no knowledge of God in the land. What? Because the statement there is very clear. There is no knowledge, none, zero. They demonstrate no actual, real, lived out, experiential knowledge of God. How can he make this claim? These are the people of God. These are the people that God delivered from the nation of Egypt. These are the people he walked with them through the wilderness for 40 years. These are the people he delivered them and gave them the land of Canaan. How can he now say there is no knowledge of God? He says that because their lives prove they don't know God. They're unfaithful. They're unloving. And if you want to see how unfaithful and how unloving they are, look at verse 2. There is swearing, deception, murder, stealing, and adultery. Now in the Hebrew the first two words, there is, is not actually in the text. This is just a list of verbs connected by conjunction. So if you just translate it in a very wooden fashion, it says swearing and lying and murder and stealing and adultery. It doesn't even identify like a person. He is swearing or he is lying or she is lying. It just gives the verbs. And it focuses exclusively on the action. But it does tell us something about the timing. These are called infinitive absolutes, which is a gram grammatical term. When they're paired together like this, it tells us that these actions are occurring simultaneously. 
when they're paired together, they're occurring simultaneously. So if you look at the first one, swearing and deception is how the NASB translates it. Swearing here doesn't refer to cursing. It refers to swearing an oath, making a vow. Lying refers to going back on your vow, to undo the vow. So I'm going to make a a silly scenario. Michael comes to me, you know, he's a purist, and he doesn't preach from an iPad. And he says, Frank, I want you to promise me you will never or preach or teach from an iPad ever again. And I say, sure, Michael, absolutely. Of course, I'll never. I'm making the promise with the intention of violating it. It's intentional deception. And he says, they're marked by this. Murder, stealing, and adultery. I don't think you really need me to explain what those three are. But then he makes another shocking statement at the end of verse 2. Notice the end of verse 2. He says, they employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. They employ violence is really just one word in the Hebrew text. And it refers to breaking or smashing. And this phrase, bloodshed follows bloodshed, you could translate it this way. Blood touches blood. Here's the idea. They're they're murdering. The blood from this murder flows and touches the the blood from this murder. It kind of connects back into that whole simultaneous thing. But it demonstrates how often and how much violence there was in the nation of Israel. This is the northern kingdom. Is this how people who know Yahweh behave? Should this describe the people of God? Yahweh gets up in the courtroom and his opening statement presents the defendants as being cold, callous, deceptive, unloving, and downright murderous. And he closes his statement in verse 3. If you look at verse 3, he says, Therefore the land mourns, and everyone who lives in it languishes, along with the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky and also the fish of the sea. He personifies the land and says the land is grieving. The land is mourning. It's the same language that Jeremiah uses in Jeremiah 23, verse 10. He says, For the land is full of adulterers, For the land mourns because of the curse. Um, Isaiah 24.4, he uses the same kind of picture. Does that remind you of anything in the New Testament? The land mourns. It grieves. Changed land to creation. Creation groans. Sin is costly. Romans 8, 19, For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God, waiting for the curse to be removed. The idea here is simply that sin is costly. That sin has a consequence for the entire nation, for all of the creation. But that brings us to the question, why mention it here? Why mention that the land is mourning? Why mention these consequences? Everyone who lives in it languishes, the field, the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea. Why bring it up here? What does it have to do with the northern nation of Israel? Can you guys guys remember back anything that would give you an idea of why you would mention this here? What's their idolatry? Who are they worshiping? Baal, Baal. What is Baal? I hear someone talking, but I don't... God of the storm, what does he do? God of the storm, what does he do? He brings rain. He's a fertility God. You appease this God, he's going to give you crops and wealth and prosperity and fertility and offspring. And Hosea turns to them and says, look, because of your sin... 
all that's going to stop. Chapter 2, verse 5, you, you see this. He says, For their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has acted shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax and my oil and my drink. I'm going to go after Baal because if I go after him and I worship him, I'm going to have good crops. I'm going to have prosperity. Chapter 2, verse 8, Yahweh turns around and says, no, no, no. I'm the one who gives you the crops. I'm the one who gives you prosperity. In chapter 2, verse 9, he says, I'm going to take it all back. And here, Hosea just says it a different way. Everyone who lives in it languishes. They, they perish. The birds of the air, the fish of the sea, all of nature, all of the land is just going to perish and languish. Your crops aren't going to be all that great anymore. This is Yahweh's opening statement. Israel doesn't know me. They have no true knowledge of God. They're guilty of great sin. And their sin has resulted in harm to the land and those dwelling in it. That's the opening statement. All right, what's the next thing the attorney does when he goes to court? Presents evidence. He gets up, he gives his opening statement, tells them what he's going to tell them, and now he's going to prove his case. He's going to prove they don't know God. He's going to prove that they are guilty of great sin. His first piece of evidence, this is the second point in your handout. Yahweh's evidence against the priests. This is verses 4 through 11. You look at verse 4. Yet let no one find fault, and let no one offer reproof. Let no one find fault. Let no one point their finger at anybody else. Don't start blaming other people. Don't start blame shifting and accusing people. Let no one offer reproof. Don't go around and start correcting everybody. But the final phrase of the statement is where you find a little controversy. And the controversy is twofold. One, there's a textual variant there. And two, the Hebrew is really difficult. And so, depending on what you read, you'll come to a different conclusion. The NASB translates that last part, For your people are like those who contend with the priest. Anybody reading the ESV? It's okay, you can admit it. It's okay. It's okay. No, no one's reading the ESV, okay. ESV says, for with you is my contention, O priests. Now, honestly, the ESV reading here makes it seem a little bit easier to understand. For my contention is with you, O priest. That seems to make this passage easier to understand. The problem with the ESV here is that requires that you change the Hebrew text quite a bit. And it also requires that you interpret quite a bit to get to that translation. The NASB sticks closely with the text. And the text is just difficult. And that's probably why they stuck with it. In textual criticism, the harder reading is usually the right one. Scribes were more likely to change it to make it easier than they were to change it to make it harder. And so the harder reading is likely the correct one. So what does he mean here at the end of verse 4 when he says, For your people are like those who contend with the priest. The idea here is that the conduct of the people is an indictment against the priests. The greatest evidence that Yahweh has against the priesthood is the lawless, sinful behavior of the people. The people are spiritually immature, they're ignorant, and they live sinful lives that demonstrate they have no idea who God is. And that is the fault of their spiritual leaders. That is the fault of the priests. You want to see how well they're doing their job? Just look at the lives of the people. And you'll see how well those priests are doing their job. This is a far cry from the Apostle Paul. When the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians, 
2 Corinthians 3, he says, You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. If people want to know about my ministry, I can just point them to you, Corinthians. The priest can't do that here. If the priest actually looked at the people and used the people as evidence for their ministry, they would see they failed. These people are ignorant and sinful. And when the people turn around and start pointing fingers at one another and start showing other people the other people's sin, it's just evidence of how much the priests have failed. Verse 5. So you will stumble by day, and the prophet also will stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. He says the priest will stumble. He doesn't tell you how they're going to stumble. He doesn't qualify it. Most people would say this is not talking about them stumbling in the sense of falling into sin. This is a, a judgment of God. The, the statement stumble by day and night just means that they're going to stumble at all times. It's going to be a day in, day out kind of thing. So what does he mean here by stumble? Um, depending on which commentary you read, they'll come up with a different conclusion. This is what makes this passage really hard. He says things and doesn't qualify them. But I did read one that I thought was interesting. One possibility is found down in verse 11. He says, Harlotry, wine, and new wine take away understanding. The word here for stumble literally refers to stumbling, falling over. And drunkenness causes you to stumble quite a bit. Now, when I first read that, I said, that's a real stretch. First, you went down to verse 11. That's a real stretch. And then you're just going off the word stumble. But the word stumble here, everyone agrees, is a mention of judgment. Jeremiah 25, verses 15 and 16. I want you to listen to how God describes judgment here. Jeremiah 25, verses 15 and 16. For thus the Lord, the God of Israel, says to me, Take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. What's he talking about? He's talking about judgment. And the metaphor is, I'm going to give you a cup of wine and you're going to drink it. They will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. When Hosea writes that they're going to stumble, that stumbling refers to God's judgment on the priesthood. Now you can agree if you want to connect it to drunkenness and God's judgment that way. That's, a, that's just a possibility. But judgment is clear, and that's demonstrated in the very next statement, the very last statement there. Very last line of verse 5, And I will destroy your mother. Anybody remember who the mother is? Back in chapter 2, he says, Contend with your mother, contend. The mother here is the religious institutions, the leadership institutions of the nation of Israel. And he says, I'm going to destroy your mother. I'm going to destroy this institution. I'm going to destroy this priesthood and the political institutions of Israel. This institution that corrupts the people. And this statement's in parallel with the following statement. Look at verse uh, 6. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Again, destroyed is just a, another reference to judgment. But here it's not the active judgment of God in the sense that God is going to rain fire from heaven. The destruction here is the consequence of ignorance. They're destroyed for a lack of knowledge. The people. One commentator wrote it, the laity, if you want to be very Roman Catholic about it. The ordinary folk. They're being destroyed. They're being ruined because they're ignorant. They don't have any real sound teaching. They don't know God. 
their, wow, their religious leaders have left them empty and alone. Their leaders have refused to teach them anything. Instead, the priests were engaged in sinful lifestyles. The priests were chasing after sin. We'll see this in a few minutes. And they began using their position as priests, as religious leaders, not to help the people, not to shepherd them, but to advance themselves. To bring themselves wealth. And in so doing, they led the people into more sin. And he's going to mention that in a few verses. And to be sure, the people were ignorant, but they willfully followed. Can you guys think of any verses in the New Testament that talk about leaders who lead people into sin? Wolves in sheep's clothing? Better to have a millstone around their neck. Matthew 18, 6. If you're going to cause your brother or sister to stumble, it would be better that you have a millstone, a stone that weighs a thousand pounds, tied around your neck and be cast into the sea. Can you think of any others? There's one other that I'm thinking about. Warning people about who, if you want to be a teacher. James 3.1 Let not many of you become teachers, for they will incur stricter judgment. These priests face a severe judgment. Because not only have they failed to teach the people, but what they have taught them is how to run headlong into sin. Verse 6 again. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being my priest. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I I will also forget your children. Notice he says they have rejected knowledge. He's not talking about some vague philosophical concepts. These, di- these guys didn't get advanced degrees in underwater basket weaving. He's talking about the true knowledge, the revelation of God. Remember Paul said that they were entrusted with the oracles of God? These people were entrusted with divine revelation, and they were told to teach that to the people. And they rejected it. They not only rejected the call to teach to the people, they rejected it in their own lives. At the end of the verse, you know, he says, I will also forget your children. And just like mother here, he's already established the meaning of children. Children, chapter 1, refers to the people of Israel. Chapter 2 refers to the people of Israel. The priests lead these people into sin. They leave them ignorant. And then these people incur greater judgment because they've run headlong into sin. And they will face the same judgment that the priests face. Not a very pleasant picture, is it? Carl? They should know better. And that's why the people, their ignorance isn't, isn't much of an excuse. Because they should know better. And I think that's a great thing for us to think about. You can't go to God later and say, well, I didn't know. And even in the New Testament, those who have more knowledge have greater responsibility. If you're going to sit in church and come to Bible studies and come to hear preaching... You need to be applying what you're learning because you will face a greater judgment if you refuse, if you refuse to apply that. Verse 7, he goes on. The more they multiplied, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. Apparently, the priesthood was a very popular vocation. Apparently, the laws that said only Levites could be priests, they weren't following this. And the number of priests just multiplied. And with their multiplying, they multiplied because a whole bunch of people were going into this false religion and participating in this religion. And so they need more priests. But as they grow in number, they also grow in influence, they grow in power, they grow in wealth. 
and the increase in priests, you would think more religious leaders, the nation would be more holy. America has a church on every corner. It must be the holiest nation in the world. Well, just like ancient Israel, they had a whole bunch of priests, but the more priests they had, the more sin that showed up. The spiritual leaders only increased the sin. It brought more sin. And so God says to the priests, the ending phrase of verse 7, I will change their glory into shame. I think this refers to the priests themselves. Uh, translations like the NIV change this text to make it sound like it's talking about um, the, de- priest, the priest departed from the glory of Yahweh. But I think you really have to alter the text to get there. He says, I'll change their glory into shame. Being a priest, being any kind of leader, is a position that comes with some form of external glory, which is why I think so many people pursue it. Yahweh says, I'm going to remove that glory. It's no longer going to be something that you're going to brag about. I'm going to turn that glory into shame. I'm going to humiliate you. These priests failed to teach the people. They rejected the knowledge that God gave them. But they did something even more sinister. Look at verse 8. They feed on the sin of my people and direct their desire toward iniquity. He has a little play on words here. Remember in the first class I told you he's a master craftsman with his words? And he does a little word play. He says they feed on the sin. Now that word for sin here means can mean two things. It can refer to actual sin, or it can refer to a sin offering, a sacrifice for sin that atones for sin. But if you if you use the first meaning, it's referring just to sin, then it would translate this way: they eat the sin of my people. That doesn't make sense, does it? How do you eat sin? But if you take the second definition, they eat the sin offering of my people. He's talking about a goat or a bull or a sheep or a lamb. That makes perfect sense. Yes? I think all this sort of parallels in the New Testament the idea of of continue sinning, sin more, because we're graceful about it. Yeah. They were using these sacrifices as a form of cheap grace but they had a benefit to it. The sacrifice of the Mosaic law, part of them were actually given to the priests, and they were the way that the priests were sustained. And by encouraging the people to go more into sin, the priests received more sacrifices. And so the more they sinned, the more sacrifices they got, the richer and the wealthier the priests became, and the better meals they had. That's wicked. He says, literally, their soul desires iniquity. The priests themselves engaged in the sin. And they became examples for the people of how to sin better. And then they would use this false worship to offer people cheap grace where they can remove their sin. Get more people, don't care about their life they live, don't care about holiness. But as long as you're putting some money in the offering plate, we're good. Or I think of the Reformation and the practice of selling indulgences. Go ahead and send all you want. Just come over here and go through this little ceremony. We'll take care of it. Verse 9, and it will be like people, like priests. Priests were the spiritual leaders. They kept the people ignorant. They themselves rejected the knowledge. They misused the sacrificial system. They engaged in endless sin, and as a result, the people followed them. And they did exactly what their spiritual leaders were doing. They became like their teachers. See why you want to be careful what church you go to? You'll become like your teachers. 
End of verse 9, so I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. How is Yahweh going to punish them? I have to speed up here because we're going to run out of time. Verse 10, they will eat but not have enough. They will play the harlot but not increase because they have stopped giving heed to the Lord. The priests were doing all of this because they wanted more food. They wanted to get more wealth. And God's judgment is, you're going to eat, but it won't satisfy you. The desire for more will never end. It'll be a mirage. You're just walking through the desert and you drink sand. He says they will play the harlot, but he pairs that with, but not increase, which is likely a a reference to actual prostitution. This is actual sexual sin. He's not talking about merely idolatry. Again, you're talking about a nation that saw fertility as being a good thing as being a blessing of the God. If you had a lot of kids, that means God really loves you. And he says, you can go and engage in all the prostitution, you won't have any more children. And not only will you not have children, but your livestock won't have children. All the fertility will end. Yahweh crushes these little hopes that they have of more prosperity. Final, the final verse of verse 10, or final statement, because they have stopped giving heed to the Lord, that's just a general summary statement. Verse 11, harlotry, wine, and new wine take away their, the understanding. Um, there's a lot of d- dispute on this. I, I think the, the idea here is this. Drunkenness, wine, when people are drunk, are they really wise? No. It it destroys your understanding. And he compares that with sin. Harlotry, sinful living, sinful desires, distort and corrupt your mind. They distort and corrupt your ability to think. And this is a really big part of Yahweh's next piece of evidence. Point number three on your handout. Yahweh's evidence against Ephraim. All right, here's a quiz. What is Ephraim? It's the northern kingdom. Hosea uses this multiple times throughout the book. He'll refer to Ephraim. Ephraim is the largest tribe of the northern kingdom. It's the most influential tribe of the northern kingdom. And it's one of the tribes that was most involved in this sin. And so when he calls them Ephraim, he's just using another name for the northern kingdom. It's just like the southern kingdom is called Judah because Judah was its predominant tribe. This is Yahweh's evidence. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I got ahead of myself. Yahweh's evidence against the people. We'll get, we'll get to Ephraim. Look at verse 12. My people consult their wooden idol, and their diviner's wand informs them. Wooden idol. It's literally a tree. My people consult a tree. He's insulting their idols. He's mocking them. And the diviner's wand, don't think that's something special. Let me give you my translation. They consult a tree and a stick. This is where they go for their revelation. He's mocking them. They believe that these little pieces of wood that they chop down and they cut off a tree are gods. They cut them, they shape them, and then they go to them looking for an oracle. Do you see how verse 11 applies here? Their understanding is just really twisted. And their condition is so bad, notice the next phrase, for a spirit of harlotry has led them astray. Don't take spirit of harlotry as some demonic force. This is just talking about uh, they're led by their own internal desires. Lead them astray pictures a bridle in a horse's mouth. This is the Old Testament way of saying they're enslaved. They willfully give themselves over to this. Hosea 5, verse 4, their deeds will not allow them to return 
to their God. They willfully chose it, they enjoy it, and they can never say no to it. They can't turn away from it. Last part of verse 12, and they have played the harlot departing from their God. Look, you can only worship one God. You're only going to be devoted to one. And as they turn away from Yahweh and worship a false god, they can't embrace Yahweh at the same time. Syncretism never actually works. To embrace one is to reject the other. And as they embrace Yahweh, or excuse me, as they embrace Baal, they have to reject Yahweh. Verse 13, they offer sacrifices on the tops of the mountains and burn incense on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth. Um, you probably understand all those other terms. Terebinth is a reference to a large tree. They believe it's probably an, something like an evergreen, but it's just a very large tree. Their false worship was pervasive. It was going on everywhere. Jeremiah 3, 6, Then the Lord said to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what faithless Israel did? She went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and she was a harlot there. Their spiritual ignorance was widespread. It was prevalent. It was everywhere. This also means that the priests made this false worship appealing. People wanted to participate in this. This wasn't a dull drudgery. Notice the end of verse 13. They said, because their shade, speaking of these trees, is pleasant. They enjoy this. They find benefit in this. What kind of benefit do you think they're getting here? Well, first of all, they're going up and they're having these sacrifices under nice, big, shady trees. And it's believed in these sacrifices the people actually got to participate in eating the sacrifice. So it's like having a religious lunch, a little picnic. But shade is also a term that's used to describe protection and provision. It was a term that Yahweh used to provide his, to, excuse me, to describe his protection and provision. Psalm 121, the Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day. There's protection nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. Shade is a reference to the protection and the provision of God. And they look at Baal and they say, Baal's shade is wonderful. Jeroboam I is our king. We're going through a time of national prosperity. Life is good. These gods are good. And they believe that all of their prosperity was coming from Baal rather than Yahweh. Very next phrase, therefore your daughters play the harlot and your brides commit adultery. It's a transitional statement that just closes out this verse. The people engage in idolatry over and over and over again. Where people get confused is verse 14. Verse 14 says, I will not punish your daughters when they play the harlot or your brides when they commit adultery. Wait, he just said they were committing idolatry. Is Yahweh now saying he's not going to judge sin? Is Yahweh now cool with the sin? I don't think anyone here would agree with that. I don't think he's abandoning justice. But I do think he is pointing out that there is someone who has more culpability here. Notice verse 14 again. He says, For the men themselves go apart with harlots and offer sacrifices with temple prostitutes. So these men who are supposed to be the leaders of their homes, who are supposed to be the moral examples, are participating in these sins, and therefore have more culpability. Some have said this verse can be viewed as God bringing judgment on these women for their sin. In the sense that he's going to leave them alone and let them continue on. Right. 
Yeah, some have, have thought that he was saying that that would be like Romans 1, where God just kind of turns them over. And that does appear here in chapter 5. But I don't think that works here. Because he puts masculine pronouns here. He says, they, they, they go with harlots. And those are both masculine, speaking of the men. And he repeats it and emphasizes it. And so his point is not the sin of the women. The point is that these men have abandoned their responsibilities and that they are now going after and engaging in this. They are going to these women. They are paying them. They are encouraging this behavior. This verse ends with a statement, so the people without understanding are ruined. Um, there's an old saying, ignorance is bliss. No, it's not. Israel wouldn't say there, it's bliss. Spiritual theological ignorance is not bliss. It brings ruin and destruction. Israel was descending into spiritual and national ruin because they didn't know who God was. Because they were completely ignorant of God. Just a quick point of application. Uh, first, theology matters. You hear people say, well, we don't like doctrine, don't get... Doctrine would have saved them a lot of pain. The second thing we ought to note there is we can't claim that we're ignorant, so therefore we're not going to face any kind of punishment for it. Ignorance is no excuse, especially today. I mean, you've got a full canon of Revelation. If it didn't save them when they didn't have that, it's not going to save you and me. So Yahweh brings his evidence to the court. Oh my goodness, we're out of time here. Okay. Let's go to the next piece of evidence. Yahweh's evidence against Ephraim. See, I got ahead of myself there. Ephraim is the northern kingdom of Israel. Look at verse uh, 15. Though you, Israel, play the harlot. He just recognizes, look, you guys are engaging in, in idolatry continually. And now he separates Ephraim from the southern nation, from the southern kingdom. And he draws a distinction between the two. And he actually brings up the southern kingdom in verse 15. Do not let Judah become guilty. Now the southern kingdom was no example of perfect virtue. They had their sin. But they had not reached the level of the northern kingdom. And he's warning the southern kingdom, look, don't follow your northern counterpart. He says, also, do not go down to Gilgal. Gilgal was a place of history. Uh, Joshua camped there. He had all the men circumcised for Passover in Joshua 5-7. This is the place where the people welcomed David back when he went out to war with Absalom. It had a central role in Jewish history. However, by the time of Hosea's day, it had also become the center of idolatry and apostasy. Um, we don't have time to read these. Amos 4.4, 4, Amos 5.5, 5, both are references to the idolatry and the apostasy at Gilgal. It started off as being a place of blessing, but it's become a place of apostasy. Gilgal is actually in the southern kingdom. Then he mentions a place called Beth-Avon. Again, he does a little wordplay. Beth-Avon is the town of Bethel. Anybody remember what I said about Bethel? What happened in Bethel? Bethel was the place where Jacob wrestled with an angel. It's also on that little road going south to Jerusalem where Jeroboam I set up idols and encouraged people to worship a golden calf. 1 Kings 12, 28 and 29. It's mentioned again in Hosea 10, verses 5 and 8. Bethel... The word is Beth, which is house, and El, which is God. Literally, it means house of God. Here, Hosea changes the name, and he calls it Beth-Avon. Beth is house. Avon refers to iniquity or disaster. 
He calls it a house of iniquity, a house of disaster. And he says, Judah, don't go anywhere near it. And do not take the oath as the Lord lives. Again, apparently, this was a phrase that was used throughout the Old Testament, and apparently it was distorted and twisted, and it had been used in their idolatry. While doing these sacrifices to false gods, they would be swearing an oath to Yahweh. And so Hosea says, just abandon it, get rid of it. He then sets the northern kingdom apart in verse 16. And he gives a very unflattering description of the northern kingdom. Verse 16, since Israel is stubborn like a stubborn heifer, can the Lord now pasture them like a lamb in a large field? A stubborn heifer is a cow. Now, cows can be stubborn. And when cows get stubborn, you get a cattle prod and you poke them and you get them to move. Here's the argument. I can't treat you like sheep if you're going to act like a stubborn cow. And you're acting like a stubborn cow. How do you expect me to guide you like a shepherd of sheep? Not a very flattering picture, is it? Verse 17, Ephraim has joined idols, let him alone. And again, this is where we have that, that Romans 1 picture. Let him alone. God is going to back off. He's going to let the northern kingdom run headlong into their sin so he can bring about more judgment. That's Romans 1. Romans 2, he says they're storing up wrath for the day of wrath. God is done with the northern kingdom. All that's left for them is judgment. Verse 18, their liquor is gone. They play the harlot continually. Their rulers dearly love shame. Liquor here is a reference to strong drink. It's gone because they drank it. And now they are drunk. And while they are drunk, they play the harlot. They're engaged in idolatry and fornication, and their rulers love shame. Their rulers love lewdness. They love what is sinful that should make them ashamed. They love it, and they follow after it. And that love of sin, verse 18, he describes it in judgment. The wind wraps them in its wings, and they will be ashamed because of their sacrifices. This verse is highly debated. I think the wind here just refers to judgment, the judgment of God. Uh, Jeremiah 4, verse 11, he talks about judgment against Jerusalem. He says, A scorching wind from the bare heights in the wilderness in the direction of the daughter of my people that's talking about judgment on Jerusalem. Jeremiah 51.1, the same idea. So Hosea, verse 18, he's just talking about judgment. And as a result of that judgment, when God does bring that judgment, he says they're going to be ashamed of their sacrifices. They're going to look back on all this false worship, and they're going to be ashamed. All right, that's Yahweh's evidence. This is a really joyous chapter, is it not? I can see it on your faces. This is like wonderful. Yahweh has one more thing to say. It's our last point on your handout. And this will go a lot faster. Yahweh renders his verdict. Yahweh renders his verdict. Up until this point, Yahweh has been the prosecutor. And his job has been to present evidence. And now he's going to change positions in the courtroom. And now he's going to be the judge. He is the judge. He's the prosecutor. And he is the jury. And he will also be the executioner. Chapter 5, verse 1. Hear this, O priest. Give heed, O house of Israel. Listen, O house of the king. For the judgment applies to you, for you have been a snare at Mitzpah and a net spread out on Tabor. Just like in chapter 4, verse 1, there's a call to listen. And this time he identifies three groups. The priests, the house of Israel, the people, and the house of the king, the political leadership. 
And he says, this judgment applies to you. This verdict applies to everyone equally. None of you are going to escape this. And he mentions mitzpah. In 1 Samuel 7, this is where Samuel gathered the leaders of the nation. And he gathered them there so that they could confess their sin of mishandling the Ark of the Covenant. Tabor was the place that some of the tribes refused to respond to the call to battle. Remember in Judges with Deborah and her husband Barak? They called for tribes to come to battle and a lot of them refused. Both locations are places where the leadership of Israel failed. Instead of protecting the people, they became a trap. These are hunting terms. They became a trap and a snare and a net. Trapping them, leading them into sin. Verse 2, the revolters have gone deep into depravity. Revolters here just refers to people who have turned away from God. They have gone deep into depravity, but I will chastise all of them. If you read the commentaries, they go through some amazing manipulations of the text to make this say something different. Well, this actually means he, he's talking about digging a pit because he has to continue the hunting metaphor and Look, you don't need to do that. Okay, Verse 1, the leaders caused the nation to stumble. They've cast a net and ensnared the people. Verse 2, they've departed from Yahweh and they've sunk deep into their sin. This is moral decline. Hosea 9.9, they have gone deep into depravity. I'll withhold explaining that verse until we get there. That's a very interesting verse. And as a result, God is going to chastise them. He's going to bring discipline. And if you think someone's going to be able to argue with God and say, no, God, you've got this wrong, verse 3, I know Ephraim, and Israel's not hidden from me, for now, O Ephraim, you have played the harlot. Israel has defiled itself. Literally in the Hebrew text, I, I know Ephraim. He's calling on the omniscience and the perfect knowledge of God. He's presented his evidence for your case so you can understand. He doesn't need anyone to prove anything to him. He knows exactly what's going on here. And that's interesting because just a couple lines ago, he said that Ephraim doesn't know Yahweh. They don't know him, but he knows them perfectly. He knows their sin. Into that verse, Israel has defiled itself. Verse 4, their deeds will not allow them to return to their God, for a spirit of harlotry is within them, and they do not know the Lord. The Lord knows them, they don't know Him. And again, the spirit of harlotry is just talking about their willingness into sin. They have embraced their sins so much that they are incapable of turning away now. They've hardened their conscience and distorted their conscience so much they cannot turn away from it. We are out of time here. Okay, verse 6. They will go with their flocks and their herds to seek the Lord, but they will not find Him. He has withdrawn from them. Mercy is done. Compassion is over. You had an opportunity to seek the Lord. I'll give you two verses here that you can look at. Second Chronicles 15.2. It says, and if you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. And if you think that's just temporary, 1 Chronicles 28, 9, he will forsake, if you, wow. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. That's exactly what Israel's getting. 1 Chronicles 28, verse 9. This is judgment. He's leaving them to themselves. This is that Romans 1 kind of judgment, turning them over to their own sin. Verse 7, They have dealt treacherously against the Lord, for they have borne illegitimate children. Now the new moon will devour them with their land. They have borne illegitimate children. That is, every generation is more wicked than the previous one. And they all follow after. And now the new moon will devour them with their land. That's a very interesting play on word. The new moon was a part of the appointed feasts and festivals of the Mosaic Law. 
It was the time where you would offer sacrifices to renew your relationship with Yahweh. And now he says the new moon won't be a time of renewing your relationship with Yahweh. It'll be a time where Yahweh brings judgment. Okay, everybody's nice and uplifted now. That was a very happy chapter, wasn't it? All right, well, I'm a little over time, so if you guys have questions, you are free to come and see me right after, and um, I'll try to answer your questions. Let's pray real quick. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Uh, We do appreciate your word. It's not always easy to hear about sin and judgment, but it's important that we recognize that the sin of Israel is the same kind of sin that is in our hearts, and we need to understand the wickedness of sin. But as we see the wickedness of sin, we just see the glory of Christ and the beauty of the salvation that you have promised. And so we just ask that you would help us to see this, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.